0: Yud Alef Tevet Tav Shin Ayin Zayin. Coming to you live from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York. I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nahum Siegel Network. <laughs>
1: <mimic> Sar <music>
0: Israeli singing group Sapir off of the album Echoes, and we sp- chose that song specifically to open up the show. A special edition that's going to be devoted almost entirely to discussing um, the speech of Secretary of State John Kerry spoke on December the 28th, 2016. A special one hour and I think ten minute speech. I mean, it just kept going on and on and on about the Middle East. And um, Most analysts who are uh, fair and balanced about the Middle East saw right away that this speech is uh, um, slanted against Israel, blaming Israel, putting most of the blame on Israel for everything that's bad. And uh, there were some out-and-out lies in this speech, and I'll, I'll point them out, but To me, more important than the out-and-out lies are the slants, the semi-lies, the leaving out, you know, the lying by omission, leaving out some important things that tell you that what the person is saying might be literally true, but is not, can't be considered truth. And that's the difference between facts and truth. And that's what we're going to try and point out. Uh, Before we begin with that, we uh, sadly mention the uh, murder yesterday of four young Israeli soldiers, Erez Orbach, Shir Hajaj, Yael Yakutiel, and Shirat Sur Zichronam Livracha, who were killed in a uh, terror attack in Yushalayim. They were getting off of a bus. They were all soldiers, by the way. They were in Yerushalayim as part of an officer's training course. And all officers in the Israeli army have a few days in which they learn about Yerushalayim, the history of Yerushalayim, and so forth. And and where this happened is close to uh, what's called the Tayelet, um, the um Is it called the Sherever Ah, I'm blanking now. But it's um, this beautiful, beautiful area where you can have an awesome view of Yerushalayim from the south. And uh, as they were getting off of the bus, congregated close to the entrance of the bus, an an Arab murderer from the town of um, Jabal Kabir, is that the name? Now I'm blanking out on that too. I'm just, I guess it's a blanking out morning. A, a part of Yerushalayim that has been extremely active in murdering Israelis. If you remember the murder of the Israelis years ago in Merkaz Harav, where a murderer walked in and started shooting them up. He was also from, from that town and so forth. It's uh, a part of Yerushalayim and therefore they can... They have regular license plates, and they can't be uh, checked as much as the uh, Arabs that come in from Yehudan Shamron. And um, it's an ISIS-inspired um, murder. There's no question about that. Uh, ISIS has been pushing its followers to, to take trucks and just ram into crowds. We saw it happen in France. We saw it happen in Germany. Um, let's hope it doesn't happen here in the United States, and let's hope it doesn't happen again in Israel. It's not new in Israel. In Israel, they were using cars until now. The fact that they're using a truck to ram into crowds is uh, is the new thing, and that's clearly ISIS-inspired. So we uh, wish well to the injured, and we remember the dead as we uh, as we begin this week here in the United States. My name is Weingart, and You're tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. We are here each and every Monday, immediately following JM in the AM, 9 AM Eastern, 4 PM Israel time. You can listen to us wherever you are around the world via the Nachum Siegel Network app, which is available for free, for free, for free. And it's an amazing app on the uh, iTunes store, on the Android store, and uh, on the web at nachumsegel.com, of course. And... We know that many of you can't listen when it's live. We love being live, but you can't always listen live. As a listener in Melbourne, Australia, Melbourne, Australia just wrote to me, you won't be able to listen because it's 1, 1 p.m. in Melbourne, Australia, and he, he can't can't listen at that time, but he'll listen later because we have the ability for you to listen whenever you want. On-demand listening, listen on demand, L-O-D, or A-O-D, audio on demand, it's all available on um, both on NachumSiegel.com. You just go to the archives, choose The Israel Show, and you can get any one of the shows for the past four years. Or on the app as well. You go to the archives and um, choose The Israel Show, and all the shows are archived there. You can listen to them at your leisure, and we hope you do. <clears throat> okay, one more song, and then we're going to start our analysis of John Kerry's speech. This is Poogie Ha'olam Sameach. We're trying to get in songs that fit in with our theme today. So kol ha'olam kulo gesher Odin. me'od and ha'olam sameach. You know, the world's a happy place. So what? So there is a UN. Big deal. Still the world's a happy place. Here's the Hakat Kaverit Pugi. My name is Mayor Weingarten. And as we said, you are tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs> And oh my gosh, did I get uh, get my geography all wrong. It's not 1 p.m. in Australia, it's 1 a.m. in Australia. And thank you to listener Gedalia, who's up very late at night, <laughs> who pointed that out to me. Okay, so uh, let's get to it. Lies, my Secretary of State, told me we're focusing on both the... Uh, lies and lies of omission, slants, and uh, things that will give the impression that Israel's is to blame for everything, Israel's is at the center of all the problems in the Middle East, when in fact, we know differently. Okay, one second, we, uh, we have some clips. Very early in his speech, we hear John Kerry saying the following.
3: My job, above all, is to defend the United States of America, to stand up for and defend our values and our interests in the world. And if we were to stand idly by and know that in doing so, we are allowing a dangerous dynamic to take hold, which promises greater conflict and instability to a region in which we have vital interests,
0: we would be derelict in our own responsibilities. So let's review this for a moment. If nations act in a way that will cause greater conflict and instability in their region, well, in that case, the USA cannot just stand idly by. And if it did, if the US stood idly by then, says Secretary Kerry, then we, the United States, would be derelict in our responsibilities. So when Syria fell into a civil war, A war that created and continues to create tremendous instability in an already unstable region. When close to 9 million Syrians fled their homes and are now in squalid refugee camps in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt, the U.S. did what? To stand idly by. That's right. The U.S. did and continues to stand idly by and therefore are derelict in our own responsibilities. Secretary of State Kerry doesn't seem to have a problem being derelict about the United States' responsibilities when it comes to Syria. No, it seems like only Israel is a problem. What about other United States allies that refuse to accept refugees from Syria? Allies like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Singapore, South Korea... Where's John Kerry's righteous indignation? Or is that saved exclusively for Israel? Moving on in the speech, Secretary Kerry would like us to believe that... In fact, this administration has been Israel's greatest friend
3: and supporter with an absolutely unwavering commitment to advancing Israel's security and protecting its legitimacy. And here's how I'm going to prove it to you. This fall, we concluded an historic $38 billion memorandum of understanding that exceeds... Any military assistance package the United States has provided to
0: any country at any time. This is one of the uh, pro-Obama favorites. We signed the best deal ever for Israel. There's nothing ever like it. It's historic. Okay? So let's point out, first of all, that it's a 10-year deal. The $38 billion, there's nothing wrong with that. Just He forgot to mention that it's over 10 years. Also, let's note that after you factor in inflation, inflation, oops, Kerry forgot to adjust for inflation, you take into account previous supplemental bumps in funding for Israel by Congress. The new greatest ever package represents less money than the last 10-year deal. In fact, retired Major General Amos Yadlin wrote, that the deal is at, quote, the same level that has existed this past decade or slightly lower, end quote. But wait, this great 10-year package that proves that Israel and President Obama are besties? Well, in order to get this agreement, Israel had to promise in writing not to seek any additional funding from Congress unless there's a war. That's for the next 10 years. But wait, there's more. Here's another little condition. You see, Israel gets military aid from the U.S. so it could buy sophisticated weapon systems, the latest fighter jets, missiles, tanks, etc. And until now, Israel could spend up to 26% of the American money in Israel buying arms from Israeli manufacturers supporting Israel's high-tech companies that develop the most advanced products that the Israeli army needs. But our bestest bestie friend, President Obama, made a change. From now on, all the money that the U.S. gives to Israel must be spent in the United States. You know what the Washington Post called it? Quote, a way of subsidizing America's domestic defense industry while strengthening the military capacity of its strategic allies. Okay, that's not to say that Israel shouldn't be extremely, extremely grateful. But let's not make this out to be a proof that the Obama administration is doing something historic, something so great that's never been done before. To review... The agreement changes U.S. policy by forcing Israel to spend all the money in the U.S. and none in Israel. Israel had to promise not to go to Congress to seek increases for the next 10 years, something that they would do on occasion before. And on top of that, the 10-year deal, once adjusted for inflation, is, in the best case, the same as previous administrations and possibly less than previous aid agreements. Well... Maybe he's not the bestest of the besties. And remember what Secretary
3: Kerry just said? This administration has been Israel's greatest friend and supporter with an absolutely unwavering commitment to advancing Israel's security and protecting its legitimacy.
0: Well, I guess now would be a good time to bring out the elephant in the room. I wish we could take out the elephant from the room. Obama's Iran, what would we call it? Outreach program. Yeah, that's it. Supporting and building up the most radical state sponsor of terror in the Middle East. Secretary Kerry was best buddies with the foreign minister of Iran. And they concluded an agreement. An agreement that allows Iran to have a nuclear bomb in 10 years. And we know that Iran is breaking the rules of the deal and the United States is doing nothing. How does that affect Israel's security. You know, one of the stories that the media and the public missed, one of the major stories that was not really covered very well during this past year, was the money that the United States sent over to Iran. It is the craziest story you can imagine. The United States made an agreement to sell weapons to Iran before the radical Muslims took it over. Well, of course, when Khomeini and others took over Iran and turned it into the most ruthless dictatorship, the United States wasn't going to send them the weapons. Well, Iran wants their money back. Oh, in the meantime, by the way, they kept they kept American hostages in the U.S. embassy for, for years. Yeah, but we want our money back. Well, who are you? You didn't pay for it. It was a different, it was the Shah that paid for it. And no United States administration since then, the times of the great Jimmy Carter, agreed to give the money to the Islamic Republic of Iran because everybody knew where that money would be spent. It would be spent promoting terrorism, promoting a radical Islamic government. The United States doesn't want that kind of money going there. So it was withheld until until John Kerry and President Obama. You know, we have to be nice to them. We have to give them back. They paid for it. They never got what they paid for. Hey, we got to be fair. Do you know how they sent them $1.7 billion? They sent it in plane loads, planes. Plane loads of cash. Cash! Can you imagine how many planes you need to send $1.7 billion in cash to Iran? Cash that is so easily funneled to Hamas and Hezbollah because there's no way of tracing the movement of the money. You know, if you deposit more than $10,000 in cash in a U.S. bank, The bank has to report it because we are very concerned about the movement of money to fund terror. After 9-11, there's even more regulations put in place so that we can track terror money. I don't know why. For what? They're worried about your $10,000? They just shipped $1.7 billion in plane loads of cash. They're really concerned about Israel's security. There's no doubt about it. More than any other administration before. Oh, for sure. And in the upside down world of President Obama and Secretary Kerry, the United States backs Turkish leader Erdogan, who, over the past decade or so, is slowly but methodically turning what was a moderate, non-Islamic Arab state into a radical Islamic state. Because, hey, that's what the world needs, yet another radical Islamic state. And as a result, Turkey, which was an ally of Israel, a good ally of Israel, has now become an enemy of Israel. And the United States is backing Erdogan. And President Obama, when he was in Israel, forced Prime Minister Netanyahu to pick up the phone and apologize to Erdogan for the flotilla incident. Let's not even get into that. Can you imagine? So this is the administration that has Israel's back the most. This is the best administration ever for Israel. We'll uh, continue after uh, a little bit of music, and this one specifically refers to the United Nations. Yo go on with Anachnu Lo Nafsi My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs>
2: هشاري نعلو ليه سعره غمو هو This is the and
0: My name is Mayor Wanger, and you're tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network, continuing on with our analysis of John Kerry's graduation speech, would we say, as he's about to leave school? One of the key flaws throughout the speech is the moral equivalence that he makes between the Arabs and Israel. He actually says in more than one way that both sides are at fault. Both sides do bad things. But Israel, he doesn't say explicitly, but clearly means this, Israel is worse because of the settlement building policy. Here's some examples. First, he describes his visits to Israel and how he firsthand saw the threats that Israel faced in the pre-67 years. And he mentions the Holocaust and Yad Vashem, etc. And then, and then he says this. I've also often visited West Bank communities, where I
3: met Palestinians struggling for basic freedom and dignity amidst the occupation, passed by military checkpoints that can make even the most routine daily trips to work or school an ordeal, and heard from business leaders who could not get the permits that they needed to get their products to the market, and families who have struggled to secure permission just to travel for needed medical care.
0: You see, you see the moral equivalence. Israel faces danger caused by the Arabs and the Arabs face misery caused by Israel. Two parties are equally guilty. Let's say what, let's see what he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us that the reason that there are military checkpoints is because the minute we took away military checkpoints, Arabs were killing Jews again. There were bombs. There were suicide Shahids walking into pizza parlors. It was tried. They pressured Israel to take away some of the military checkpoints. The truth is, yes, the military checkpoints are miserable. They're miserable for the Arabs. They're miserable for the Jewish young soldiers who have to man them. But you don't have a choice when you have people constantly trying to get into Israel and blow themselves up. You think we got to check people coming into Israel to work, to make sure they're not carrying any bombs? And why can't people get permission to travel for needed medical care? Because time and again, Israel caught caught red-handed Arab ambulances that were supposedly going to bring people to medical care carrying weapons and explosives. Yes, these are really horrible things, these checkpoints, and the need to be tough on a civilian population. But Israel does it only for one reason, and one reason only. They have no choice. It's either that or be killed. And here he goes again with the moral equivalence. Now he's going to tell us how he saw the the Jewish children are suffering, and then he's going to tell us how the Arab children are suffering. They're both the same. They're both children suffering. No difference. Morally, they're the same. Listen.
3: And I have witnessed
0: firsthand the ravages of a conflict that has gone
3: on for far too long. I've seen Israeli children in a... Whose playgrounds had been hit by Katusha rockets. I visited shelters next to schools in Kiryat Shimona. The kids had 15 seconds to get to after a warning siren went off.
0: Okay, so he got a little mixed up. It's the kids in Kiryat Shimona who are suffering from the Katusha rockets, and it's the kids in, they wrote that have the 15 seconds. Okay, it doesn't matter. But after he tells you about those children that are suffering, he immediately goes on to say.
3: I've also seen the devastation of war in the Gaza Strip, where Palestinian girls and Isbet Abed Rabo played in the rubble of a bombed-out building.
0: There you have it. There's that moral equivalence that he is portraying for the world to see. There are the kids in Stelot that are suffering. There are the kids in Kiryat Shmona suffering. And at the same time, at the same time, there are the kids in Aza who are suffering. The Palestinian girls in Isbet Abed Rabo playing in the rubble of a bombed-out building. Why is Gaza bombed-out rubble? They didn't get it that way from Israel when Israel left. Who created the bombed-out rubble that is today Gaza, or parts of Gaza, we should say, Mr. Secretary? Why is there a girl playing in the bombed-out ruins of a Palestinian Arab neighborhood? But even without the problem of the moral equivalence, you point to the ravages of Gaza? Israel walked away from it all. Full withdrawal. 8,000 people were evicted. Towns were ripped apart. Cities were destroyed. And the people that left there, their lives were destroyed. Israel left multi-million dollar assets so that the Arabs can begin to grow an economy and start a little state. What did they do? We all know. The very next day, the Arabs attack and destroy everything in Gaza that Israel left and invested all the money and the supplies that they get to build terror tunnels and to build rockets in order to attack Israel. Mr. Secretary, the people in Gaza are poor and playing in the rubble. Whose fault is that? As if there's some equal force that is responsible for the child in Starot who is suffering and the child in Aza who is suffering. The child in Aza is suffering because he voted in a leadership of a terrorist organization, Hamas, in an election that was the last election that's going to take place in Gaza. It fascinates me that he can now go on to speak about, yes, the two-state solution.
3: Despite our best efforts over the years, the two-state solution is now in serious jeopardy.
0: And he continues.
3: Now, most on both sides understand this basic choice. And that is why it is important that polls of Israelis and Palestinians show that there is still strong support for the two-state solution. In theory, they just don't believe that it can happen.
0: I don't know about you. I just cannot understand what the heck that sentence means. Most on both sides want a two-state solution. He says there's still strong support for the two state solution. In theory, they just don't believe that it can happen. Well, if it can't happen because one side wants to kill the other, and so the other no longer wants to agree to this, how can he say that 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 most of the people agree to it? It just I don't understand the whole sentence. Okay, not the last thing I'm gonna not understand.
4: (laughs) Chok millions zafek. At Je am going to go to the house. I'm going to go לשוב the house. I'm going to go to the house. אותי am going to go to the I'm i to I'm going to
0: Great Ishairibo Matzilo T. Koliom, the one above, saves us every day. Khatsiba al Korchi. It's almost like I don't want to be saved, and yet God schleps us in. My name is Mayor Wang, and you're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. We are reviewing and covering and uncovering lies that my Secretary of State told me from the uh, speech that John Kerry gave on December the twenty eighth, twenty sixteen, about the uh, Middle East. Situation, he uh, he did say that um, that he thinks that somehow he thinks that most people, most Arabs and Jews, agree that the two-state solution would be a good solution. I don't, I didn't understand that because he also said that most of them believe it'll never happen. Well, here we go. The two-state solution. He continues about the what is clearly the center point of the whole speech, the two-state solution and the jeopardy that it is in. You can comment on our app, and I thank those who are. You can comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Israel Show. Be sure to like and listen and uh, look. <laughs> Here we go. This critical decision
3: about the future, one state or two states, is effectively being made on the ground every single day despite the expressed Opinion of the majority of the people.
0: First of all, I'm sorry to tell you, Mr. Secretary, that's not true. It's just just patently false. A majority of Israelis do not support a two state solution. We'll tell you soon why, but a giveaway might be the fact that in the last election, Netanyahu's party and other right wing parties, who you call extreme radical, won an overwhelming majority of the Israeli electorate. What does that tell you about how many people in Israel are supporting it? The people of Israel have learned their lesson and do not see this as a viable possibility anymore. And in a democracy, they vote. And as time goes by, since the Oslo agreements, where there was tremendous support, the facts on the ground are not holding back the solution. The facts on the ground are showing and instructing and informing Israelis that what they thought was a good option in Oslo was really nothing more than a dream. It was not shtachim tmurat shalom. It was shtachim tmurat Shalom. And now, a bit watered down, in a very somewhat parva way, Secretary Kerry tells you about the terrible things that Hamas is doing. Listen.
3: Most troubling of all, Hamas continues to pursue an extremist agenda. They refuse to accept Israel's very right to exist. They have a one-state vision of their own. All of the land is Palestine. Hamas and other radical factions are responsible for the most explicit forms of incitement to violence. And many of the images that they use are truly appalling. And they are willing to kill innocents in Israel and put the people of Gaza at
0: risk, in order to advance that agenda. Sometimes the wording is just insane. They are willing to kill innocents in Israel. Oh, they're willing to do that? Really? Okay. And then he continues to tell you what's going on in Aza and Hamas.
3: Compounding this, the humanitarian situation in Gaza, exacerbated by the closings of the crossings, is dire. Gaza is home to one of the world's densest concentrations of people. Enduring extreme hardships with few opportunities, 1.3 million people out of Gaza's population of 1.8 million are in need of daily assistance, food and shelter. Most have electricity less than half the time, and only 5% of the water is safe to drink. And yet, despite the urgency of these needs, Hamas and other militant groups continue to rearm and divert reconstruction materials to build tunnels, threatening more attacks on Israeli civilians that no government can tolerate.
0: Okay, so there you are. I think this is the end of the conversation. You understand, Mr. Secretary, what you just described, the reality that is Gaza today? That was the trial balloon. We tried this. Look what happened. We dare not try it again. Isn't Gaza the perfect example of what can happen if Israel withdraws from Judea and Samaria? If we listen to your advice, Yehudan Shamron becomes Gaza number two, a terrorist base, another terrorist base, but this one is in the heart of Israel. Does anyone in their right mind believe that any kind of Arab state that would be established in the heart of Israel would not be a dictatorship where people would have very little rights, and it will be a center of terror. Just look at Aza. But there's one difference. When you fire rockets and missiles from Aza, you mainly hit Steyrot and Ashdod, which is very bad. But when you fire missiles from the Shomron, you hit Ben-Gurion Airport and Rishon L'tzion and Rehovot. Tel Aviv. Is there any reason in the world that, that any Israeli would agree, agree to withdraw from the Shomron and allow the enemy to sit on the high ground? Isn't Aza the perfect example? All you have to say to yourself over and over and over again is, remember Aza. Remember Aza. Remember Aza. We tried this. Look what happened. And for whatever reason, The Secretary of State and the President of the United States fail to see the entire Middle East falling apart, but they can absolutely see every little extra bedroom that's added in Yehuda or in Shomron and every little hilltop where Jews have decided to construct a home. It is, without a doubt, an obsession. Let me share with you some facts. When was the last settlement constructed, would you think, 10 years ago, that would place it at 2007? No, earlier. Would you think, I don't know, 2015, 14? No, actually, 1999. And in 1999, do you know how many settlements were established? Three. And you know how many in 1998? One. And in 1996? One. And in 1993? One. And you know whose numbers that those are? Not mine. They're the numbers given on the website of the radical left-wing organization B'Tselem, the Israeli radical organization who puts as its goal to fight the settlement activity. It's their chart. Does that mean that there is no increase in Jewish population? Of course there is. But you'll note that all, in all his talk, in his entire speech, Secretary Kerry kept talking about the numbers of people, not the numbers of settlement. And if we all know and agree that the majority of the people in Yehudan Shomron overwhelmingly live in those areas that everyone agrees will be part of Israel, even in this imaginary two-state solution, then what's the problem?
2: We saved venu we redeemed
0: Kaveret Pugi, with Medina Tanat. It's, it's a small country, what can we say? They want to make it smaller. <laughs> my name is Mayor Wangart and you're tuned to today's real show on the Nachman Siegel Network. We're analyzing the uh, speech of John Kerry, Secretary of State. This was his big magnum opus about the Middle East, and oh my God, what a mess he made of it. We're in the midst of talking about the quote unquote the settlements, the settlements, the settlements. And uh, we, we shared some statistics, but here we go. Here's Secretary of State sharing his. To statistics. You know that famous line, I think it was Winston Churchill who said, There's lies, damn lies, and statistics.
3: The number of settlers in the roughly 130 Israeli settlements east of the 1967 lines has steadily grown. The settler population in the West Bank alone, not including East Jerusalem, has increased by nearly 270,000 since Oslo, including 100,000 just since 2009 when President Obama's term began.
0: Well, here's the part that we have to figure out, and it's very hard to do so. But we know one thing. There are large areas that Israel and the United States, and I would say the Arabs as well, agree, will remain part of Israel, even if there is ultimately a two-state solution. For example, the area of Ariel, the area of uh, Ephrat, Gush Etzion, Ma'ale Adumim, and of course, the neighborhoods around uh, Yerushalayim. Now, if we take out those numbers, the number of Jews living outside of those major blocks is relatively small, relatively small, percentage-wise for sure. So he talks about an increase since Oslo, and since 2009, one assumes, one has to assume, that most of that is within Gushay HaHit Yashvot, the areas that will remain Israeli no matter what. But he doesn't divide those out. He just tells you the total number excluding East Jerusalem. And if one figures that the overwhelming majority of that increase happened in the Gushay HaYit and that a large percentage of that number is natural growth, people having kids. It's not that the government is standing there and moving people into Yudan Shamron from outside of Yehudan Shamron. There is some movement for sure, but these are large families. Every family in Yudan Shamron, surely the religious ones, are having six, seven kids. Is that some sort of a terrorist plot that Israel is... Uh, A plotting against uh, the Arab communities? And as if to answer the question that we just brought up, Secretary Kerry continues.
3: There's no point in pretending that these are just in large settlement blocks. Nearly 90,000 settlers are living east of the separation barrier that was created by Israel itself. In the middle of what, by any reasonable definition, would be the future Palestinian state. And the population of these distant settlements has grown by 20,000
0: just since 2009. I might be getting the math wrong, but if there are 90,000 settlers living east of the separation barrier, and in the last eight years, their number grew by 20,000, how many kids is that per couple? Can't be many. Eight years, you could have five, six kids in every family. If they are 90,000 settlers, maybe there's 20,000 families. 20,000 families having one kid is, is an increase of 20,000 right there, and they're not having one kid. I don't know how these numbers are, are are working, but they're surely not very scary. The only part of it that's scary is that Israel has not been putting more Jews into Yehuda and Shomron. And if one supports that, then one should be concerned. The fact is that Netanyahu's government, as much as it talks it does not do, and everyone who lives in Yehudan Chamor knows that it is very difficult to expand any settlement. In addition to the 10 months freeze that Netanyahu agreed to, during which the Arab side did nothing, of course, which of course Secretary Kerry does not does not mention, at the end of the day, this obsession with settlements is just that. an obsession by a failed administration that has allowed chaos to be created in the Middle East, has done nothing about it, and now in its waning days decides to take a shot at Prime Minister Netanyahu, who they so desperately hate. We'll conclude this analysis by reminding you that since the Oslo Accords, offers have been made to the Palestinian Authority which would allow them to create a state in Yehudan Shamron in over 90% of the territory that they seek. And time and time again, the generous offers by Israel are turned down. Ehud Barak made a far-reaching, one would almost say insane, offer to Arafat at Camp David, and Arafat rejected it. President Clinton called him a clown, said that he ruined his legacy in the Middle East couldn't comprehend how he could turn down that proposal. Ehud Olmert made a proposal to the president of the Palestinian Authority and spokespeople for the Palestinian Authority, the official spokespeople for the Palestinian Authority, have admitted that the proposal would give them 100% of all the land that they want with land swaps, meaning Israel would keep, let's say, Ma'la Adumim, but the Arabs would get an area that is equal to that Ma'ale Adumim area. And Abbas turned away and never came back. Now they have excuses, all kinds of excuses, but the bottom line is they have shown time and time again that no matter what Israel puts on the negotiating table, they're not going to accept it. Well, if you take the whole picture, what happened in Aza, what happened in South Lebanon when Israel evacuated the army from there and it turned into a hotbed of terror It turned into an area controlled by Iran via Hezbollah where tens of thousands of missiles are aimed at Israel at this very moment. When you stand on top of the mountains of the Shomron, you can see everything. You can see Ben-Gurion Airport right in front of you. You can see Tel Aviv. You can see Khadera, You can see Petah Tikva. And you can see Ramad Gan. And you can see Rishon Lutzion. Why would any sane Israeli allow for that to happen? For Arabs who hate us and who've shown that they hate us time and time again, stand on top of those mountain ranges and be able to shoot missiles at us. Now you'll say, why? We're strong. If they shoot missiles, we'll fight back. Yeah? Look what's going on in Gaza. Could we fight back? Could we retake Gaza? Would the world allow it? Would Israel internally allow it? It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And we see that it doesn't. And so those in Israel who say the two-stage solution is dead, I would say, are probably right. That just leaves us with one problem. If that solution is dead, then what solution is there? And I dare say that at this point in history, having lived through everything we have lived through, having seen everything we have seen, having tried so many different ways and been been rebuffed every time. We might have to come to the conclusion that in this lifetime, in this generation, maybe there is no solution, because there are things in our world that are problems that can't be solved right now, that are problems, the solution for which are distantly in the future. And with that, we end. It's uh, not an optimistic view, but I think it's a realistic view of what is actually going on in Israel and how the majority, the overwhelming majority of Israelis see the situation and how it not only differs from the opinion of uh, John Kerry and uh, President Obama and the entire administration, not only does it differ, but it is at odds with and it is it, it is diametrically opposed to um, the solution that they believe can uh, can take place when in fact most Israelis believe that if it did take place, it would be an exists existential danger to the state of Israel. Well, some of our listeners said I'm preaching to the choir, and the truth is, as I think Dennis Prager says, sometimes the choir doesn't know the song or forgot it, and it's important to remember it and to remind each other And as I speak to people sometimes who uh, are listening to uh, whether it's John Kerry or others or seeing videos with uh, anti-Israel claims, I find that they're stupefied. They sometimes just don't know how to answer and don't know what to say. And it's important for us to remind ourselves and to remind each other that we are in the right, that we have done so much to try and get peace and um there is the other side that has done everything possible to make sure that there isn't any. We'll end off with Boker Tov olam, good morning, world. Sort of like, hey, wake up and smell the coffee and see what the reality is really like. But before we do that, we want to thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all your Facebook likes and comments. Don't forget to like the Facebook page or tell if you like it already. Tell your friends to like it. The more the merrier. Very important. Facebook.com slash The Israel Show. Thanks to the staff at the Nahum Siegel Network. And my very special thanks, as always, to Nachum Siegel. Coming up on the Nachum Siegel Network, an hour of great Jewish music, followed by an encore presentation of headlines with David Lichtenstein, and then the great Monday Music Marathon. Until, until when? Until next Monday. Immediately following JM in the AM, this is Mayor Weingarten reminding you that nice guys do not finish last, they're just running in a different race.